Welcome to episode 116 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up? Oh, just uh, celebrating Israeli Independence Day and Jackie Robinson Day. So all's well and a happy Jackie Robinson Day to you, Leslie. Well, thank you. I, I am a huge Jackie Robinson fan. So apologies if anyone follows me on Twitter because I'm retweeting a lot today. Um, but yeah, it's a fun fun day in baseball. But I, I kind of wish the baseball community would kind of lean a little harder into his, his life and career. But uh, I digress. You, you do indeed, but I introduced the digression for you, so we're both to blame here. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's it's something special to get to watch, you know, Dodger games and see everybody wearing forty two. So I'm looking forward to that to watching that tonight. Uh, anyway, well, we we don't talk about baseball this week, but in, um, instead, what do you say we just get started with headlines? Bring it on. Leading off, we got some fun feedback on on uh, your comment from this last week. So we're going to file this one under still humping. Bridgerton has been renewed for two additional seasons, taking the Shonda Rhimes drama through its fourth season on Netflix. In other renewal news, Warrior has been picked up for a third season and will move from Cinemax, which doesn't really exist anymore, to HBO Max. And the FX comedy Mr. Inbetween will wrap with its third season. Amazon has inked Serena Williams to a first look deal and will film a docuseries with the tennis champ. In casting news, Fabian Frankel has boarded Game of Thrones prequel House of the Dragon at HBO. Natalie Portman will star in the HBO film's telepic The Days of Abandonment, based on the Elena Ferranti novel of the same name. Over at Hulu, Michael Sarah will star opposite Amy Schumer in a comedy series Life and Beth. See what they did there? It's a pun. And NBC is moving forward and will film a pilot starring Demi Lovato about a group of people in a food issue support group. And if that sounds like the FX mid-aughts sitcom Starved, then that means you remember the mid-aughts FX sitcom Starved. Most of you probably do not. I would be filed under that group, yes, of the people who do not. So, oh, it was it premiered at the same time as it's always sunny in Philadelphia. For some reason, one has had uh, a a longer shelf life than the other, um, probably having to do with one being fairly awful and one being instantly charming and iconic. Well, there you go. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one, leading things off, it's been a busy week at CBS. Lots of details. So break it down, Leslie. This week, following lengthy deliberations with star Mark Harmon, the actor has signed a new deal to return to the flagship NCIS series, and that has triggered a season 19 renewal for the network's longest-running scripted drama series. Now, there's still some stuff that's a little unclear. As I had reported earlier this year, Mark Harmon was ready to go. He was ready to leave the show. And then word got back to him that CBS, which owns and produces the show, was probably going to cancel NCIS if he departed. Once he heard that, he said, OK, I'll come back for a few more episodes. Let me, you know, if it'll trigger a renewal. So that's what I heard a few months ago. Everyone is mom. I checked in with his agents and a lot of other sources connected to the show. It's top secret. No one has it has the scoop just yet about what his status for season 19 is. So it could be a series regular, could be a handful of episodes, or it could just be a straight up new deal. 
And he's like, okay, one more year and we'll keep going um, and we'll reassess. So no word on a final season, no word on an episode count. Obviously, COVID complicates what what productions are able to film. Everything was probably shortened this year across the board. So yeah, so TV's uh, biggest and highest rated scripted drama series is coming back for another season. And it was one of five dramas that was renewed this week at CBS. Um, The network also renewed Magnum P.I., SWAT, Blue Bloods, and Bull. Still remaining on the bubble is NCIS Los Angeles. We already know that NCIS New Orleans will end later this season. And CBS is likely going straight to series on NCIS Hawaii. And then you've got other bubble dramas, including All Rise, Seal Team, and Rookie Clarice. Sophomore drama Evil is still awaiting a premiere date. And then you've got, on the comedy front, The Unicorn and Rookies, Be Positive, and United States of Al, all waiting to hear decisions. But heading into the upfronts in May, which we're still trying to hear details on what those will look like this year, everything was virtual and kind of held, you know, kind of haphazard across the calendar you know, in the middle of the worst, uh, the beginning of the pandemic. So we don't really know what that's going to look like. But what we do know is CBS has gotten a lot of the renewals and a lot of final seasons out of the way. So not a whole lot of decisions left to make for them. So there's your update on CBS, Dan. It, it seems as if the networks are beginning to slowly start actually revealing their plans for the upfronts next month. And that's almost become that's almost become an exciting thing to try figuring out how anyone's doing it. What are you hearing and just in terms of how these events are are going to be maybe looking a month out? Well, I got my first invite to a network upfront presentation this week. NBC sent out something and it said join us virtually May 17th to preview new scripted and unscripted and sports and all this other stuff. So we know at least that's going to be virtual. What I don't know is if there's going to be like an in-person presentation for key ad buyers to go. Press has always been invited to to attend in person. I've gone once in my career, but I prefer to watch those live streams, those links that are really sent to press, uh, which are incredibly handy. You don't have to travel from LA to, to New York and carry your computer all over town and try to file a story from a tiny cramped theater. But yeah, um, it wouldn't surprise me if this was all virtual again this year. Um, who knows who's going to travel, but it, it also probably is a lot more cost effective for, for these networks at a time when, yeah, everyone's very bottom line conscious. So th- that will be something to continue to monitor. We would be remiss to not mention in terms of CBS News that there was a lot of let's say, wonky business-type news that actually came out on on Thursday as well. Uh, CBS News has tapped uh, Niraj Kemlani and Wendy McMahon as co-heads of CBS News and CBS TV stations after merging the two divisions. So I'm not sure I can give you an idea of why that's relevant, but it's a pretty big deal for those people. Yeah, it's really the first big move that, that CBS Corp CEO George Cheeks, who came over, I think it was a year and a half ago, maybe two years now, from NBC Universal. It's one of his first big reorganization moves since taking over CBS. So interesting because they've obviously had some allegations on the TV stations group that forced an executive change there. Uh, he has denied those allegations. We won't name him here. But yeah, so it's interesting to see those two departments merged under one one roof. So I don't know that there's another outlet that does that or another network group that does that. So and just one last piece, and earlier this week, Kim Goodwin departed CBS News and took the top job as president of ABC News. So lots of changes happening atop various network news divisions, all things that are very big news in this industry that we cover, but also not particularly exciting when it comes to discussing them on podcasts. 
Yeah, not necessarily our target audience there, but definitely worth mentioning. Number two. Up next, it's time to check in briefly on the streaming wars, particularly that most sexy a piece of information, the battle for subscribers. This week we had some big news coming specifically out of Amazon. What did we learn? Well, Amazon announced this week that Prime memberships have topped the 200 million mark, up from 150 million in January 2020, as CEO Jeff Bezos pens his final letter to shareholders before passing the torch to Andy Jassy. Uh, also revealed this week, Amazon spent 11 billion. I'm going to say that again: 11 billion, billion, billion on video and music last year, up from 7.8 billion in 2019. That's a lot, Dan. And we should note, obviously, that includes music royalties and, and a lot of other things. It's not just all on original content, the way that Netflix does these deals. But the the prime number is interesting because, look, you know, prime membership does include access to originals like Upload and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and a number of and Borat subsequent movie film and a lot of other content coming to America. Um, but it also includes free shipping for everyone ordering everything that they have during the pandemic. And I don't know about you, Dan, but my garage is filled with Amazon boxes. I believe we can pretty safely say that there's a large percentage of the audience that has never watched an episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel that totally appreciates free shipping. So uh, <laughs> that would be me. I have never seen Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. There, I said it. OK, maybe I've seen two episodes, maybe three. I was going to say, we totally had Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino as guests on the TV's Top 5 podcast. They were very entertaining and funny. Uh, that was a long time ago. Like, a thousand years ago. That would be episode 50 from uh, December 13th, 19... No, sorry. 1973. <laughs> that was, 1973. That was one of the vintage episodes. Ago. I thought it'd be funny. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> when we were young and doing things virtually. That one was virtual. We did that. Remember that they were in New York when we were in LA in, in our former boss's office and had them on speakerphone. That's how high tech we are here at TV's Top 5. Yes, that was that was when they were virtual, we were real, but it was also how we used to do things when we couldn't get together in person as opposed to now when we just do everything on our computers. So maybe we're better off, Leslie. Maybe we're better off. So hovering hovering over a speakerphone in the same room. I just miss hanging out with you, man. Uh, definitely that would be too germy to do today. Um but yes, so those are the numbers for Amazon, which as we emphasize again, people get it. Free with shipping, uh, with free shipping, rather. So none of the other streaming services have the same, I don't know, primary or secondary draw, depending on how you look at it. So it's really and truly completely impossible to compare the numbers. But what other numbers do we currently have a sense of, at least? Yeah, and it's also, you know, worth noting that they also charge more. It's $99 or when it, isn't it like, wait, maybe it's more than that. It's like $130 a year annual membership. So well, There's that. I mean, that's a year, whereas Netflix is whatever they are on a monthly basis. True. So and whatever tier you have, et cetera. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Okay. Basically, Bye. it all just comes out automatically every 12 months or one month or whatever. So, yeah. So give us some other numbers. What how do we how do we compare those Amazon numbers? So by comparison, Netflix has north of 204 million total subs. And that was from the end of 2020. And obviously they don't come with free shipping. There's not that that's their primary business. So those are 
I'm going to go out and on a limb here and say those are real subscribers. Um, and then you've got Disney Plus at over uh, 100 million, which is a big metric considering that's what, maybe two years old now or a year and a half old now. Um, HBO Max, which is coming up on its one year anniversary next month, has 37.7 million subscribers. And of those, 17.2 of them are what they classify as active, meaning active accounts, not just HBO's people who get the, the premium cable network and haven't yet activated their HBO Max account uh, because they don't care about streaming for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, that, that's an interesting number. And then you've got Peacock, which turned one this week. They have more than 33 million subs, but it's unclear how many of those are paid versus their free ad-supported tier, which counts me as a subscriber. And it's also notable too, because that figure is from December, which is before The Office started streaming. So you can probably bet to see some healthy gains on there when they when they announce their next uh, subscriber totals. So yeah, we're, we've definitely got a lot of these increasingly complicated numbers as we get to the services that have the tiered versions. So Hulu would obviously have its tiered versions. Paramount Plus, we're a long way from getting those numbers, but they're going to have tiered versions. So, and then you have the free memberships that come with things like if you buy a new Verizon phone, you get a free membership to this. And if you buy an Apple product, you get a free year of Apple TV Plus. But we should also note that Apple TV Plus has that Apple has never released numbers for how many subscribers they have for TV Plus. And if they did, they would have to break it out as to you know the people who are getting the membership for free versus actually paying members and you know anyone that converts from a free membership to a paid membership too so yes getting getting very murky here it's all complicated but frankly these are closer to real numbers than anything we've ever gotten by way of ratings so we'll just enjoy talking about it for these couple minutes and <laughs> and then go back to blissful ignorance for the next few months right so when you know disney puts out a release that says falcon and winter soldier you know is its biggest release of all time Okay, great. So they have 100 million subscribers of those, maybe 100 million. Do you think 100 million households will watch Falcon and Winter Soldier? I don't know. And then, you know, it, it becomes how many of those are active, how many people actually sign up and versus got it for free versus, you know, are actually engaging with the service, you know, the service like, you know, we have it and outside of the original programming, like until WandaVision, we hadn't used it since Mandalorian. So... Yeah. That's not true. You watched Hamilton. No, that's true. You're, you're right. We watched we watched <laughs> Hamilton and we watched um, Mulan. See, there so. you go. And right. So I guess we are using. I don't know. I need. This is why I need to keep better track of what I'm watching because I can't remember what all this the content that we consume. You did just but. list three things over the course of like five and a half months, which is not a lot of use, but still in all, it is some use. So right. But when I do look at the list of stuff that that. I have been watching, and this is something I'm trying, I'm showing this to you on virtually, Dan, it's on my, my phone. A lot of stuff is on HBO Max. Uh, so that surprised me. So I, anyway, I use HBO no Max, Hulu, I use HBO Max, Hulu, and uh, Netflix more than any of the other services, just in terms of general usage, but that's, everybody's got their own needs. Yeah. Have you watched anything on Peacock? And I watch the Amber Ruffin show and I and I only subscribe to the version with ads and the ads are annoying, but the Amber Ruffin show is good. So I don't feel bad about that. And every once in a while, I'll find myself watching 
some vintage show that they have on Peacock where, again, I suffer through the ads, but there's just not enough there for me to justify paying for it. Like under normal circumstances, I hate advertising and I will pay that extra three to four bucks per month to avoid it. But Peacock does not at this moment have enough actual programming to be worth it for me to even pay at all to get rid of commercials. I'll take them as an impediment until Peacock has more things that I actually want to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, well, that's so that, yeah, so that that's your update on the streaming wars. So Amazon crossed a big number, but it's a big question mark. How many of those are actual really subscribers for Hollywood content? So there you go. Number three. Up next this week, a former Bachelor leading man dropped a big bombshell. Joining us to discuss is THR's resident Bachelor Nation expert and East Coast managing editor, Jackie Strauss. Jackie, thanks for joining. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So basically, we only know enough to know when Bachelor news is something that people are talking about, but we do not know enough to make sense of it or to understand why people are talking about it. Fortunately, you do a great job of that. So break down the Colton news from this week and why it is rocking Bachelor Nation to its core. Well, don't you think it's interesting this news keeps rising to <laughs> pique your interest out of Bachelor Nation? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that silence to speak for myself. <laughs> interesting is exactly the word I would use. No, I look. No, I, but look, I mean, good for him. You know, every time someone stands in their light and stands as their true self, the world gets better. So I will say that as a member of the same community as, as Colton. So... But yeah, Jackie, take it away. Yeah. Break well, it down. Well, so on, on Tuesday night, uh, Good Morning America released a teaser that Colton Underwood had a deeply personal interview. So Bachelor Nation was um, titillated on Tuesday night trying to figure out what was going to come on Wednesday morning. Um, and when he appeared, uh, he did an exclusive sit down with Robin Roberts. Most of it aired on GMA on Wednesday morning and a few unaired moments aired that night on Nightline, um, which are just being released now. Uh, but in the, he sat down with Robin and he said he was gay and he processed this this year. Um, he said the pandemic caused a lot of people to look in the mirror and figure themselves out. And he said he arrived there after reaching a very dark place. He spoke of having suicidal thoughts. And he, sitting there with Robin, said, I no longer feel that way anymore in speaking his truth. Um, Colton, if you don't know who he is, he was a... Wait, wait, I know this one. <laughs> he He was the virgin bachelor. Yes. Which that explains is, a lot. It, yes, it's a very interesting part of this story. Um, he was heavily marketed as the Virgin Bachelor. I believe the poster was from the movie 40 Year Old Virgin with him superimposed and Judd Apatow, I think, allowed that to happen at the time. Um, he played into it. He, you know, it was definitely, um, it was a big part. He first appeared on The Bachelorette season where he was a top four finalist and he announced his virginity on that show. Um, but then after that, he went on to Bachelor in Paradise, which is the summer spinoff. And he kind of emerged as a breakout star from that and then got 
to be the lead the following season. And by that time, his virginity was a major talking point. Uh, it, you know, Chris Harrison was talking about it in interviews. It was going to be a big part of the season. It was a big part of the season. But what's interesting and what Colton said in his interview with Robin Roberts is that he never really had a good answer for why he was a virgin. Um, I mean, he spoke about his Catholic upbringing. He spoke about how past relationships didn't really provide the opportunity for him to be intimate. But what he said was, I was a virgin because I'm gay and I didn't know how to handle that. And now he's going to getting a new show, but it's not on ABC like the rest of The Bachelor shows are. It's on Netflix. So go figure. But uh, what do we know about that show so far and why it landed at Netflix? Yeah, so we don't know a lot about it, though I believe the first photos of him filming released today. So this all seems to be pretty good timing um, in that respect. But uh, what we know is it's going to be about him living his life as a gay man. Um, you know, when in in the interview, he said he's never had an emotional connection with a man. He It hasn't gotten to that point yet. And he is hopeful that he will have one. He says he wants to be a dad. He wants all these things. Um, and I, you know, the show is, from what I'm told, is going to be multiple episodes. So I believe it'll be a series. It doesn't sound like a dating show. It doesn't sound like, you know, The Bachelor on Netflix. It sounds more like it's going to be specifically about him and his coming out journey and what life is like now that he is his true self. Now, I know that a lot of the most of the reactions I saw from people in my immediate Twitter sphere were very much like Leslie's. But a lot of the reactions that people had were, I'm accepting, but now allow me to retweet this horrible person who was not nearly so accepting. What was your sense of how fans of the show were responding to this? So it's interesting because um, off camera, after his Bachelor journey ended, he ended the show with Cassie Randolph. Um, you might recall or remember him jumping a fence for her. That was also a very big moment. Um, he kind of broke show rules. He quit the show, ran after her, got her back, and they ended in a relationship. And they kind of kicked off this trend of the Bachelor's ending without an engagement. Uh, they dated for a year. And actually, it was around when the pandemic hit, Colton was one of the first celebrities to to come out and publicly say he had COVID-19. He was very sick. He was staying with Cassie's family. And around after that time, they announced they had publicly split up um, and things got pretty tumultuous in the press. They took to social media to comment about their breakup. Uh, she later filed restraining orders against him. Um, allegedly, he was harassing and stalking her. She later dropped those um, restraining orders and they settled them privately. Colton released a statement at the time saying that they had reached a private agreement. So a lot of people, I think, to your point, were celebrating this. Of course, it's it's a huge moment. It's a huge impact. And I think everyone wants him to find happiness after hearing, especially what he's experienced to get here. Um, but I think people wanted accountability for him to just address that behavior. And it's interesting because in the part of the interview that aired on Nightline, he did speak a little bit more about it. I mean, he had offered her an apology initially. And in the clip that aired later on Wednesday night, he, he basically said, I completely messed up. I made terrible choices. I, you know, I think to quote him, I don't want to misquote him, but he said he was holding on to being straight. 
and he did things that he is regretful for and he's sorry, but he said that they haven't spoken. He wants the opportunity to talk to her. So, I mean, it'll be interesting if she decides to speak out or maybe this is something they will try to do on his Netflix series. Who knows? But um, I think people just wanted him to really address that. I don't know if that satisfies those people. They might want to hear more, but I think that's kind of the, the dual response you're seeing. I like that I briefly thought that you were going to say, we think maybe they'll address these things in private. And instead <laughs> you said, we think maybe they'll address these things on the Netflix series, because heaven <laughs> knows nothing, <laughs> nothing is private, apparently. I so mean, They're on a dating show, Dan. <laughs> but they, they definitely did throw privacy out the window. I, like last time we had you on, of course, we talked about the show's tortured history with race over the years. And the show has had an even more tortured or completely ignoring history with gayness over the years and, you know, all of these installments of the show and there's never been a gay bachelor, gay bachelorette. How there's been a been homophobic this- bachelor before, if I, if memory serves. <laughs> yes, the show hasn't lacked for homophobic contestants, but has, has there been conversation of how this news fits in with that narrative so on the show? On actually one of Colton's former contestants was the first major contestant to come out as queer. And she did that on Bachelor in Paradise, I believe in 2019. So what feels like a very long time ago um, for all of us, I think. But before. <laughs> yes, before the pandemic feels like 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, that that got the franchise its first same-sex couple. I mean, Bachelor in Paradise is definitely a better format for that because it's men and women coming to the beach. It's people trying to date, you know, whoever's available. It definitely lends itself to, you know, falling in love with whoever you want to fall in love with. I think the way that the show is set up with The Bachelor Bachelorette, you know, that makes it a much different kind of a show. But after the way it played out, I mean, it was a pretty positive reception. I think there were a lot of questions of could the franchise evolve to, you know, having more queer contestants. And that seemed like more of a conversation from the fans. You know, the franchise never officially said anything. You didn't see anything evolve after that. Um, But, you know, Bachelor in Paradise wasn't on last summer because of the pandemic. It's coming back this summer. There are even more cycles of, you know, seasons to choose because it wasn't on last year. So they have the potential to do it. I mean, will they do it? Is it the best forum? Is it the right audience? Those are, I think, different questions. But I mean, no, the the franchise didn't say anything. And is Warner Media or Warner uh, Horizon, which is the studio on Bachelor and all the Bachelor shows, the right company to do this, considering what they just went through with this other historic season? So... Right. Are they ready That's to my take question. another big yeah. swing? Yeah. I mean, get glad involved from the start. Make sure you don't, you know, put your foot in your mouth or hire contestants that that tweet homophobic stuff from, you know, that's like buried deep in their timeline or something, you know, like do your homework if you're going to do this. Right. And I mean, those are all problems that have happened on, you know, every recent season. So it's certainly a valid concern. I think that I think that's really the biggest concern is 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 the franchise equipped to evolve in these ways. I don't know. Well, when you well, when you look back on how last season ended, 
would you be feeling more or less confident in the franchise's equippedness to handle anything of seriousness at this point? Uh, yeah, I think that it was a classic case of one step forward, two steps back, maybe 10 steps back. I think after that season on Bachelor in Paradise with the contestant Demi, um, you know, she spoke about the support she had from producers. There were producers she talked with about their coming out experiences and they really helped her at the time. So it sounded like that diversity was there behind the scenes. Um, and then when you see what happened this season, it's, it's a little bit hard to reconcile the, you know, those two seasons, one coming out so well and one coming out. So I guess problematic. Not, yeah. To say the least. <laughs> Well, Jackie, um, one last question for you, but how have some of the contestants who have crossed paths with uh, Colton responded? Have we seen, has anyone come out and said, pardon the pun there, but has anyone come forward and said, oh, I had a feeling or congratulate, you know, like how is, how is this being received by his former love interests? Uh, let's see. His, um, Tasha Adams, who was one of she's currently co-hosting the upcoming season of the bachelorette she was recently had her own season and they were finalists together i'm now mixing up my seasons because they've each been on so many but she really supports him um she took to her podcast and i think the general view is they're also happy to see that he has reached this point and that he's speaking his truth um there's been I think one of the things that went viral the most yesterday was Billy Eichner, a clip from when he visited the show as a celebrity host, and he called Colton. He said, you could be the first gay bachelor. And he kind of responded to that moment saying, you know, I love being gay. So happy you're happy. And they've been commenting on social media together. Colton said, I love you back. So, you know, that was like a nice bromance moment happening. Um, I think there's been a lot of support within the franchise. Chris Harrison posted his first Instagram post since he stepped away from the franchise, you know, uh, supporting Colton and posted a picture. So there's definitely a lot of support from the, from the franchise. Yeah. Chris Harrison's got to be saying, yes, new, new cycle. Woohoo. <laughs> Well, on that, Jackie, thank you so much for, for stopping by the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, you guys. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guest this week is Sierra Teller-Ornelas, a broadcast comedy veteran whose credits include Happy Ending, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Superstore, and Splitting Up Together. Her new show, Peacock's Rutherford Falls, marks a breakthrough moment in television with its native representation both on screen and in the writer's room. Thank you for joining us, Sierra. Thanks for having me. So getting started, you co-created Rutherford Falls alongside Mike Schur and Ed Helms. How did the three of you come together for this? Um, well, first, before I start, my name is Sierra Teller-Ornalis. I am a member of the Navajo Nation. I am Edgewater, born for the Mexican people. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me here. Um, it's, it was just a wonderful kind of pairing. Um, Mike and Ed um, had worked together on The Office um, many years ago and just really enjoyed working with each other. They kind of ran into each other and decided they wanted to kind of work on something. And so we started kind of passing ideas back and forth and came up with this character, Nathan Rutherford, 
and sort of the world of the the town and and sort of certain themes that they wanted to explore, they started to kind of realize that the story might have some uh, Native American elements to it. And I had worked previously on Brooklyn Nine-Nine with Mike Schur, and then I had developed a pilot a couple of years prior with uh, Ed Helms and his company. And so my name kind of got brought up and they're like, oh, we worked with her and we really like her. Let's let's meet with her. And so met with them and um, kind of got like a pitch doc of what they were working on. And a lot of it was sort of resonating with, I, at the time I had just finished working on a show called Superstore and I wanted to do like a native anthology. That was like my dream, sort of like that Mark Duplass HBO show where it's just like a different story every every episode, but all throughout Indian country. And so, but a lot of the themes that they were sort of talking about of like, what is American history? You know, why do we cling to certain narratives and what happens to other narratives that get completely marginalized by in doing that and stuff. And and I grew up in museums and my mom is a master Navajo tapestry weaver. And so I kind of like, you know, my brother learned to walk in certain museums when she would do these demos and stuff. So it was just a world I was really uh, well-versed in. I'd worked at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian for many years before I came out here to write for television. And so, yeah, so I kind of came at them with my sort of ideas and these characters and kind of, we just ended up developing for, I mean, over a year before we even pitched it and um, sold it to Peacock and we're kind of off to the races. So, yeah. Well, the idea that they brought to you, what sense can you give us of how fleshed out that was? Or were there just kind of large placeholder segments? Thing thing that we will fill in when we have someone who knows better than us. No, I think it was like, um, God, it's, it was so long ago and we've literally done so many versions of this show. But I know, I think the, the best friend, I was not Native. I remember um, reading the doc and I was like, oh, she should be Native. And because and, it reminded me of a lot of kind of friendships that I had growing up and, and just in different working environments and stuff and then um but then like the Nathan character and his sort of lore and love of sort of like the apocryphal and that sort of thing was definitely there the idea of it being in a small town um the idea of sort of this ripple effect of one small thing kind of creating this sort of snowball effect that affects the whole town I mean there was there was some like very large piece and you know whole scenes that were like in the pilot were from that original pitch doc so there was a lot there but there was like, I think the way Mike always says is like, we had half of it and then Sierra showed up and she brought the other half. <laughs> and 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 there were parts from, it wasn't necessarily like they made the non-native parts and I came in with the native parts. Like once we were in a room together kind of questioning each other and, and it was like another set of fresh eyes for each other. And, uh, and so then we just kind of, it became all of ours. And as you were developing this, the the Native American tribe at the center here is a fictional tribe. I guess my first question is if there were any considerations to selecting a specific and real tribe and making that the focus. And then once you were constructing your own community, how you decided to blend the specific and general elements. Yeah, we had a lot of conversations about whether or not to make it a real tribe. I think amongst like Native communities, you know, it's a bummer when things aren't specific um, because there are, you know, over 500 federally recognized Native nations in the United States. They all have their own governments, their own, you know, culture, religion, language. And so, you know, it's it's when you see something and it's not always um, a specific tribe, it, it can be a little bit like, oh, you know. But in this case, the, the non-Native history was fake. So there was like, I've also like been in so many situations where I've seen actual nations connected to fake history, uh, fake American history or non-native history. And, and, um, 
you know, when I worked at the Smithsonian in the film department for many years, um, we showed Native films and programmed Native films. And we got this call. I remember this was like in the late two th- uh, tw- the late aughts, basically. And, um, and they had this, uh, there were a bunch of teenage girls who wanted to know about the Quileute Nation, which is a tribe in the Pacific Northwest. And we were like, that's crazy. And, and so, but they wanted to know how to, how they could become a wolf and how, how they could like, what wolf, wolves ceremonies that we could provide for them. And, and I had, and we had no idea what they were talking about. And they were like, it's some movie called Twilight. And they called us cause we were the film department. And so we had to go down there and explain like, that's fake. That is not real. That is not accurate. And we'd heard stories, you know, over time of like tour buses showing up to the nation and the woman who wrote Twilight you know, tried to find a town, I guess, where there was no sunlight and noticed on the map when she found that town that there was a Native nation nearby. And so just like with the flick of a pen changed like all these people's lives and affected like me in D.C. And so I've always been just super sensitive to the impact, which no matter what, if you make something with Native content, it's going to have an impact and you have to kind of absorb that and, and own that. But we, I just didn't want there to be a situation in which people start to be like, oh yeah, I know about Blank Nation because of the show that I watch. You know what I mean? Where I think it's a pan-native story. And so we wanted to very much be respectful to the Northeast and that, that you know, we have a writer from the Northeast who is native on our staff. We, you know, tried to be very respectful to the region while at the same time, the show itself is a reflection of, you know, the five native writers when it comes to the native content, the five native writers on staff, including myself. And, and we are from all different regions of the country. And so, so we kind of leaned into, and we're very proud of the fact that it was a reflection of, you know, our stories and our experiences while also trying to be, you know, cognizant of, of the questions you're asking. Well, so what are the werewolf traditions of the Mishonkin tribe as you understand them? <laughs> there are none. So that's very accurate. Um, and, and I'm sure, you know, and that's the thing that's so hard is like I'm – there could be in certain nations stories of, you know, like certain animals are important to certain nations, but because it gets like Hollywooded, it just becomes this sort of fodder for people. And, and we were very much trying, like the, the the main focus in terms of not just the Native representation, but also the Native comedy on our show is to show Native people as people. You know, no one turns into mystical creatures on our show. It was very important for me that, that you know, we we have regular lives and regular jobs and, and our our lives are specific. They're, you know, they're Native specifics that I'm not sure even, you know, that everyone is going to get when they watch, but it is accurate to, you know, to my experience and experiences of the other Native writers on the show. So, but it was always to kind of make sure we were in on the joke, one, and that also it was sort of reflective of a modern Native experience. You know, you, you mentioned, obviously, the writers on the show, and in prepping for the interview, there's a press release that Peacock put out that says the show is actually a breakthrough in representation, both in terms of the writer's room and on screen. Um, in your efforts for authenticity, you know, how challenging was it not only to cast this show, you have two two Native stars um, at the at the center, yeah. and then staff the writer's room, which, you know, that, that sounds like it's, it's history making. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about, about the challenges there? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been working in television for 10 years. Uh, I've been a TV writer for almost over 10 years now. And like when I first got here, I was sort of told, you know, I, my first sample was about these two sisters set in a trading post. It's called Trading Posts. And, um, and it was set on the Navajo Nation. And I remember people being like, oh, I love your sample. It'll never get made, but it's like a great sample, you know? And you'd be like, okay, well, we don't know that. Like, who knows? You know, like you still dream of making 
stuff about your community. And then um, and when we sold the show, there was, I think, a little bit of like a worry that there wouldn't be enough people, Native people writing or, or acting. And we just did not find that to be the case. Like we met so many Native writers or so many Native people, both in LA and outside of LA that are just really, really great writers. We, we found, you know, there's been a swell of Native comedy that's happened online. So there were just so much like talent to pull from. And so we met a bunch of Native writers. We, we staffed four, including myself would be five, um, but like I ended up suggesting a lot of writers where I was like, this person isn't great for this show, but she should be on a CW drama. Like go hire this woman, like go hire Carly Malmute, like go hire Lucas Brown Eyes. Like there were people who, and, and like Lucas has been working in the industry for many years, you know? So I think it's a little bit of a misnomer that it is a challenge. Like it's a challenge in the sense of you have to go to UCB shows and you have to like, but I would hope that on any show, that's how you would cast is like, not just, you know, waiting for people to be submitted, but kind of going in and researching and finding people that you like. Um, same thing with casting. I mean, we, we ended up casting two of our writers just because they were so funny, but we had an abundance of, of native actors for every role. And I'm just, I'm was so exciting because we knew like, we could write any kind of like, you know, guest cast two line thing. And we're like, oh, this person will kill it. Or like, oh, this person can play Terry's wife. And so if anything, like that initial casting of the the first um, main characters, it gave us a lot of, it gave me at least a lot of confidence of being like, oh, they're out there. We just have to, we just have to find them, but they, they're there. We'll talk a bit about the casting of, of Jana and sort of the order of things. You conceive the character of Regan. You bring in Jana to be part of the writer writing team. At what point do you realize you could actually give this person who has very little, you know, on-screen acting experience, primarily a podcaster, a lead role in a show this big? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the beauty of comedy. Like, my first job was on a show called Happy Endings. And I remember that, like, that show, like, Adam Pally had never done anything. Like, there was, like, certain actors who it was, like, their first real, like, acting job. And they just ran with it. You know what I mean? I think, like, people who do, like, live comedy, they are performing every night. I think that's why, like, stand-ups get, like, cast in so many things. Because there's just a kind of, like, rugged tenacity that they have. And so I saw Jana at a UCB show and I thought she was so funny and she was just winning. You just immediately were rooting for her as a person. And and she'd done all these sort of like short films. She did this really funny video in New York City where she kind of um, mimicked a subway panhandler, except she was asking for a date. She was like, I haven't, I have not dated in many years. She was like, I will take anyone's phone number, any cousin, not even anyone in this cart, just any. <laughs> and it was so funny. And like, I hate to use the word brave. It's like brave and authentic are like my least favorite words, but it was so funny. And she was so genuinely her. And I was like, this woman's amazing. So we, it was like not a question to hire her as a writer. And then coming up in, you know, the way I did, it was very rare for writers to get jobs on the shows that I've worked on. But Mike and Ed coming from the office, you know, Mindy Kaling being a uh, writer, BJ Novak, it wasn't seen as as odd in any way. Um, you know, Chelsea Peretti, I think, wrote on Parks and then became cast on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So in that world, it felt very, very normal. And so we we let everyone audition. I mean, we let our, like, writer's PA audition because she was a stand-up and we thought she was funny. And she did great. We haven't put her in anything yet. But um, so, yeah, so so it was one of those things that felt like 
odd and completely comfortable all at the same time. And it wasn't a situation where we were like, oh, she's pitching so many Regan lines that she could be, you know what I mean? It was more just, um, this was someone who, and I think what did help was, I think she had a great rapport with Ed in, in the writer's room. And that was definitely something we knew we could kind of lean on. But, um, but yeah, it was kind of this weird thing that just kind of, it was like a slow moving ship and then it landed. <laughs> we're like, oh, here we go. It's happening. And what was the studio response to this from from Universal? Because you know we've heard that they, you know, they want to, to, you know, to help launch new careers and help discover new talent. I mean, everyone wants to do that right now. It's kind of you know the the, the unicorn right now, where if you can you wind up casting someone or bringing someone in as a writer and then discover that there's so much more. I mean, we're reading to your point. There's so many more stories of that happening now, right? We just wrote a story the other day, this week, that about uh, one of the stars uh, from Superstore getting a talent deal that Lauren, included, uh, yeah. right, Lauren Ash so happy getting, for her. and she's going to write a comedy pilot, you know? Yeah, so of course. Can you talk a little bit about the feedback from Universal about uh, bumping Jana to from writer to co-star as well, or to star? I mean, sorry. I think we were all just. I think anytime you cast a show, you're just so happy if it feels like it's going to work. You know what I mean? It's almost like you're like making a spaceship in the back of your house or something, and you're like, oh my god, it went up off the ground two feet. You know? So I think anytime you feel like you've hit the target, you're happy. Like, uh, but yeah, they were very supportive. I want to go back to the writing process a little bit. You, you mentioned this. Uh, but obviously, any comedy room is going to generate a certain number of of one percenters, you know, the jokes that are just for a small, tiny audience. With Rutherford Falls, how many jokes are there that you think the Native American audience is just going to go, OK, oh, God, this, that's a joke I've been waiting to hear on my television for my entire life? I think I don't know. I hope hopefully a lot of them. Um, I think like, uh, you know, I always start with the caveat of like, we are not a monolith, like Native people are so different and varied. So I'm, I am I don't expect it to be like, everyone's going to like this, you know, in that sort of way. But I think like Native people, I always use um, Northern Exposure, which is a very old show as an example of, you know, great show. Um, loved it growing up. And I remember when Marilyn, who played Joel's assistant, the doctor's assistant, she was a Native woman and she looked like my mom. She was like a larger woman and, and had long black hair. And I loved her. And she had a great deadpan and she she would like do her joke and then she would like go out of the office and then you would just follow Joel on his, you know, adventures. And I remember always kind of being like, oh, I just want to stay with Marilyn. Like, to me, that show was about Marilyn, you know? And she had one episode, I remember, where she went to Seattle by herself and had an adventure. And, like, that was, like, we taped it. It was, like, a huge deal in my house. And and so to me, I think, like, more than, like, the one percenters or the specificity, I think just getting to see Native characters be people and focus on them and they're not just props that help the white character get to the last three episodes of a 20 episode arc on billions you know it's it's a real thing where they have like backstories and lives and families and 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 um and pathos and complexity like to me i think that kind of environment is just going to be a really exciting thing I, that's the thing i'm most excited to see how indian country re responds to but along those lines, you know, we talked about Jana, who's not someone who people are going to know. But Michael is an actor who has worked a lot. And I was thinking back over his recent credits, and he's had like three roles in a row on major dramas where he's been kind of the the scapegoated Native American character who everyone suspects of murder and is innocent. And it's, it's the certain trope that he's been cast in repeatedly. I, I'm curious. A, first of all, did you know he was funny when he came in in the first place because he's hilarious? But also, did he express any excitement about getting away from the kind of roles that he'd been playing lately? 
Well, I mean, I think Michael Gray Eyes should have like nine Oscars and five Emmys. Like, I think he is just incredibly talented and one of the nicest human beings on earth. He's also like an associate professor. Uh, like, he talks about like native media in such a thoughtful way. Like, he's just an incredible. He reminds he has like a Barack Obama quality to him that I just love. Where he's just like incredibly thoughtful, incredibly kind, and just a just a really talented actor. So, I mean, we were we obviously knew his work prior to meeting him um, and really enjoyed him as an actor. We didn't know if he could be funny necessarily, but meeting him, he was he's like a goofy, funny dad. Like he just really is not like how I've seen him in in TV and film. And he'll say like he was like I'm at the airport and people want my autograph from Fear the Walking Dead. And I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? And they're just kind of like, wait, this is not the guy who I anticipated I would be speaking to. And so, so yeah, I think like, um, I think we didn't totally know how he would play it until we saw him in the audition. And it was sort of late in the process, but he just really nailed so many different parts of of that role. And then him with Jana, I was like, that's just a naturally funny, there's like a kind of sweaty, fun, sort of nerdy energy to Jana. And there's just a very cool, like not necessarily cold, but very like, at ease with himself energy that I think Michael's character has that watching the two of them to me was just so much fun. Um, so yeah. And I think even though you, I, I can't speak to how you're describing the roles that he's played on previous shows, but I feel like everything he plays, he brings such humanity to, and he really brings a lot to those roles. And so to get to see him kind of bring that energy and then also be funny was just, it was so much fun. It was great. And you mentioned all the things he does, but he's also a, you know, he's trained primarily as a dancer. Have you guys found a way to get that particular skill set onto the show yet? <laughs> oh, we're working on it. We've we've laid some seeds. So hopefully if we get a season two, it'd be great. Uh, now, you did, did mention season two. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you see the arc of this show? Like, we, you know, for, for critics, we've only seen the first four episodes and obviously the whole season drops at once, yes. which is another, another topic we can we can get into later. But do you have a long term? What's your long term plan? Is this a show that you see running six seasons, et cetera? Like it's getting spinoffs? Is this, you know, I, I'm curious about the, how you pitch this. I'm a very superstitious Navajo, so I will not acknowledge any of that. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to have this air and pray to God that we get a season two. I mean, I will make as many of these as people will humanly let me make. So I, I love this show so much, and it's been such an honor to get this opportunity. So, I mean, you know, there's so many. Native stories to be told. I think these characters and Ed is so funny. Like I will make as many as as I'm humanly willing to be able to make. But um, but yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think we're really more just like kind of waiting to see it premiere. Like we've we've been working on this for so long. I'm just so excited to have people enjoy the show. And just in terms of the strategy, you know, um, the interesting thing that Peacock has been doing is they're looking for originals that pair well with their library and obviously the office and parks and rec live on peacock in this show with ed etc and from mike it, it feeds very well to go alongside it but tonally how would you say rutherford falls compares to a show like the office well i think i don't know that's a really good question i mean i think there's a lot of sort of like there's a couple of different workplaces and I think each workplace kind of has its own personality. It's set in a small town. So I think there's a lot of crossover in terms of like tone in that way and sort of the characters and the way that we sort of treat them. Um, 
I would say that, you know, what I love about Mike Sure shows is, is that they are always sort of set out to say something. Like as when I was just a viewer of Mike Sure shows, I really appreciated that. And I I loved Parks and Rec was like the first time I saw like someone really wanting to make change in government. And it was a genuinely funny show and it didn't feel like homework, but it also dealt with some pretty interesting themes about local government and, and sort of women in in kind of um, the working world. Um, and then Good Place, I mean, hello. It's like, how do we make philosophy <laughs> funny and interesting? Um, my only beef with that show is that I am from Arizona and um, I'm super annoyed with some of the Phoenix-based humor on that show. But um, but but yeah, so I think, you know, our show is sort of dealing with these themes of like, what does it mean? Like, what is American history? And what are these narratives that we cling to? And why do we cling to them at our own peril? And I think, but I think, you know, in that we are making a comedy. We want it to be funny. We want people to enjoy it. And and I I love that kind of tone that Mike sort of sets in in the stuff that he creates and co-creates and produces. Well, there's the scene with the pitch meeting at NPR and the editor makes the specific point that if this were the more traditional protesters and a Confederate monument, et cetera, she would understand what the story was, but she doesn't as it is. When you were specifically figuring out what Big Larry would be as a person and as a representational statue. He's, you know, he's obviously a colonializer, but he's not the worst version of that character that there could be. And obviously that was something that you wanted to go with, having him be a kind of more banal version of quote-unquote evil than a genocidal lunatic or something. How, how did you craft how seriously a threat we would view that character and his legacy to be? Well, we talked a lot about this thing called, when we were kind of developing idea, this thing called the backfire effect, which is, um, there was a podcast about it. It was like this weird hiccup in human psychology where if you're presented with information that goes against a core belief of yours, most people will like not only not accept that information, they'll like double down harder on their original wrong belief. So it's why we have like anti-vaxxers. It's why we had Trump, we still have Trump supporters. It's why we have like, you know, and everybody does it. Like liberal, conservative, it doesn't matter you know, socioeconomic, everyone does this because it's it's a personal thing. It's like a caveman brain sort of response. And so so I think what we liked about the the sort of Big Larry thing was that, you know, Nathan is sort of clinging to this narrative about his family. And that as he kind of goes on, I think everybody on the show is sort of doing that. That everyone has a narrative, like in the same way, you know, Josh is looking for this powder keg or that everyone on any given Sunday is clinging to sort, and not that like kind of waters it down or we're all equal, but but that that people have a hard time reconciling with their histories, and some people like Regan are forced to reconcile with their histories every day, right? And so, so I think that this is where Big Larry and that kind of character starts. I think as layers are kind of uncovered and histories are revealed, things will change. But but I think we wanted to kind of start in a place of of. Um, kind of Nathan's headspace and awareness of of his family history but with also planting the seeds that you know American history is not is not clean and not easy so and, and you mentioned the person who was our president before this one and yes. uh it feels as if there's a conspicuous desire not to address that there is the one woman in the first episode who makes the joke about taking our country back but she's even kind of treated as a as a joke uh, how did you decide that you didn't want to directly address the particular nativism that we've been going through for four years before this? I don't know. I think that we, I don't know how to say this. 
we definitely developed this idea before a lot of issues, I think, came bubbling up to like mainstream culture, which is, I mean, obviously a lot of people have been dealing with this for many years. So it's not to say that it wasn't in the news. Um, I think that that we didn't shy away from it necessarily, but I think we were much more interested in the like interpersonal kind of behaviors of people. That how how I think, I don't know, the past four years, I feel like we've all been living in this haze of everything being filtered through this thing that almost mentioning it felt not necessarily unnecessary, but it's it's all so connected and all so messy. So to me, this like backfire effect element was us facing that behavior head on and those issues head on because to me, that is where the sort of nativism comes from. And I think that, you know, we always talked about in the room how I would always try to be explaining to people, like, there are stereotypes that Native people are exhausted by that white people aren't even aware exist. And so it's like, how do we tell this story where we're all starting from different places of awareness? And to me, that was, like, the more interesting element of the storytelling than necessarily, like, calling out specific groups or saying, like, you know, we do we do an episode about um, cancel culture uh, later on in the season, and we tried to kind of not couch it, but, like, pull it down into the interpersonal relationships of the characters versus being like, we're going to make a statement about this. You know, I, I think that that sometimes on Superstore, we, like a show I worked on, we would try to talk about these like bigger issues and it always helped when it was kind of focalized within the two characters versus someone making a monologue about, you know, about th- something or, or being like, this person represents this group. It just felt like, it just always kind of, comes off as hacky, at least comedically. And because I think we were always very like aware of like how funny is this and making sure it's smart and funny and that Native people are in on the joke, that that sort of were our guiding lights, if that makes sense. You know, you mentioned that there are, are a lot of stereotypes that Native people are exhausted by that many viewers may not even be aware of or writers may not be aware of. Can you talk a little bit about those? Like what shows are doing it right? Who's doing it wrong? How do you want to change that? Yeah, I think like when it comes to native stereotypes, I think erasure is just the first one. That's that we don't exist, right? We're not we're not participatory in American history, we're not participatory in in anything. We have no technologies. It's like a idea that we were primitive and then we sort of went away. So that's like the first sort of hurdle. It's just we exist. Then when you have someone who's on screen, often it's like a Thanksgiving episode. So we only show up kind of in November and it'll be like a a sort of mythical, you know, magical native person who gives you the advice that helps you win the big race on Saved by the Bell or, or, you know, any kind of thing like that. There's also, I think, um, a really hurtful stereotype that we get free stuff. So there's this belief that like native people don't pay their taxes, which we do, that, you know, that the stuff we've gotten is, you know, free, that we all have casinos. And that that kind of mentality isn't seen like, oh, these two sovereign nations made an agreement. And because we have, you know, we we have this legally binding agreement that we are trying to like figure out and process and are combating and fighting and and trying to get to the bottom of. Like, it's never seen in that way. It's seen as like, oh, we get free stuff. And so a lot of Native characters that I find on shows, you only get like one episode and they're very tricky or they're very um, nefarious or they're, they're they're here to like cheat people out of things. Um, most casinos that are, you know, portrayed on television, the people who it's like the tribal, 
you know, chairman or president also runs the casino and he is usually pretty corrupt and connected to the mafia. Like if you look at Sopranos, like the Columbus Day episode, that was sort of the the feel. And and that is so not accurate. <laughs> to like, so, you know, really what we I loved about this show was the minutia that when Terry Thomas, the CEO of the casino, you know, explains to Josh, like we are a nation with a separate government and I run a business that is owned by the nation. When he has to go to tribal council to get a approval for his plans. To me, you would never get to see that on a on another show. And in that, you get to have this really great kind of bonding episode between, you know, Jana and Michael. And so it was almost like diving into that sort of bureaucracy and explaining that stuff really did lend itself to comedy. And it also just made for a better story. And I find that people are trying to rush all of this into one episode and they end up cutting the things that are the truthful parts of our story and end up just making us look like like criminals or or tricky people and that's just not the case. I mean just to view the casino almost as a workplace how much did you learn in your time on Superstore about how specific you can be about that sort of workplace environment and you can take a place that for that TV often treats as a joke, you know, and make it into an actual real place because it feels like there's a lot of the DNA from that in this. Yeah, I mean, that was always sort of our idea is like, how do we humanize the Native people on the show? I mean, Lawrence Schur, who directed the first, uh, he directed three of our episodes, directed the pilot, and he was, is like a very famous DP nominated uh, as the cinematographer for the Joker movie. Um, just a really great dude. And and um, and I remember him explaining the sort of color palette that he wanted for the show. And he was like, Ed and the, the museum were all going to be like these like warm tungsten lights, like kind of warm oranges and, and, and kind of fiery colors. And then the casino would be neon. So it would be, you know, blues and greens and really like futuristic in its, in its lighting. And I remember thinking like, this is the guy I want this guy. Anyone who's putting Indians in the present day and the future is like who I want. And that was sort of a guiding force for a lot of the stuff we did where when we got to the casino, it was like, this is a job. These are people working jobs. They have different opinions on the casino. Some of them like it. Some of them hate it. Some of them are indifferent to it. Um, and, and really like leaning into that sort of workplace comedy as, as a, as a way to kind of frame that environment. I really, really loved. Now, Talk a little bit about your vanity plate at the end of the episodes, because that, <laughs> that feels very personal to me. And it feels like the kind of thing that I imagine you've had in your mind sort of set for a couple of years. What was it like to make that? Thank you so much for bringing that up, because I feel like with streaming, no one will ever see that vanity plate because it's at the very end. So <laughs> like maybe the last episode, you'll get to see it. But yeah, my uh, company is called Booth Fee Inc. So um, my mom is a native artist. She um, weaves like amazing Navajo tapestries. She's sort of like the LeBron James of Navajo weaving. She's like very well known and very good at what she does. And so growing up, we would do two shows a year. We would do the Santa Fe Indian Market in Santa Fe and then the Herd Fair in in, in Phoenix. And so you, you know, weave all year. It's a little like staffing season. You work all year on these pieces and then you have one weekend to kind of, you know, make as much as you can for the, and then you kind of save your money and do it again six months later. And so she would always say, we just need to make back our booth fee. Like, like we've invested, you know, the $700 it costs for this space. So as long as we make that back, we're not like losing money. And so that was sort of my ethos as a TV writer of like, I won't lose you money. Like I'll make you your booth fee back in terms of my ability to produce for you. Um, and so, yeah, so growing up, you know, we'd get up at like five in the morning and my family would set the booth up and they would make these beds on the ground, um, 
for my brother. So my brother would sleep and then um, I would help set up and you'd, you know, you'd start selling as soon as these sort of like, you know, and it'd be like celebrity, like remember like Arnold Schwarzenegger came one year. It was like, you know, kind of that stuff. And, and people who owned like, you know, sports teams and things, they would show up and they would buy our pieces. And, and so, um, that was always a really wonderful time in my life. It was like when my parents were very in sync and worked together as like these really cool people. And, and, um, you know, my mom and her sister won best of show in the late eighties. It was the first time a textile had ever won. And we were like in business week magazine and it was like this huge thing. And so, so I have a lot of reverence for, for Indian market and that culture and that hustle that I think a lot of native artists have. And it, it was like, when I think think of my family all together. It's like my brother asleep in the booth and my mom holding court with my dad holding a rug and selling. And so that was, um, that was why the title card is that. And, um, this guy, um, I believe his name is Dale DeForest. He's a really wonderful, uh, Navajo, uh, illustrator and, and painter. And I saw him on Instagram and he did these really cool, kind of mashups of like Navajo versions of um, Fred and Wilma from the Flintstones or like Navajo Golden Girls. And um, and I remember thinking, I DM'd him and I was like, are these animations? He's like, no, I wish, you know. And so I was like, if I ever get a title card, if I ever actually get a show, I was like, I want you to to do the art. And so, and he did, he did such a great job. And and then um, the woman says, um, which means like, good job, baby. Um, and so we had my mom, <laughs> my brother recorded my mom with his podcasting equipment and had her say it, which is kind of nice because it's like forcing my mother to say I'm doing a good job no matter what. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, so that's the, that's a very long explanation of my, uh, title title card. No, it's what I, that's exactly what I <laughs> wanted to hear. What, what was the, what was the reaction of sending of when you actually got to send that title card to your mother to your oh, family? She loved it. She loved it. It was like she just thought it was so cool, and she was very very proud to be a part of it. I love that. I love that story so much. It, it, you just reminded me of, of my childhood doing baseball card shows and my mom getting up early and helping me and doing and having that be a family thing, even though it was one hundred percent me driving that. So <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I just want to quickly circle back to one of the first things you mentioned, the the Native American anthology series that you'd always wanted to do. Yeah. How, how close is that to being a tangible thing that you're pitching to people and are people interested in that? Yet? Oh, zero. I've, I never, ever did it because I ended up hopping onto Rutherford. So it's definitely <laughs> not something. But now I feel like I feel even more emboldened that that could be a thing just because, like, I've met so many people from – different parts of the country. And, and I think there's so many interesting native stories, you know, usually when we're all kind of in a room together, all we're doing is cutting up and telling stories. And I just would love to bring that and translate that somehow on screen, which I feel like we have done a little bit here on Rutherford. Um, but, but yeah, it could be cool. And, and piggybacking off of Dan, you know, with Rutherford, how much more stuff, you know, this is obviously, you know, co-creating and, and show running your first show is a huge opportunity. And, and how are you looking to build on that? Do you have an overall deal with Universal yet? I am in the middle of an overall deal currently at Universal that's ending soon. So we'll see how, see, hopefully they let me, I've earned my keep enough to stay. Um, but yeah, yeah. So we're sort of in the middle of that. And are you developing other things as well? I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually, I've been writing a feature with Jana and Tazba, who are two of the native writers on our staff. And then I'm writing a different movie with Eric Legend, who is an incredible writer on our staff as well. Uh, well, we always do like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying these days? Ooh, what am I watching and enjoying these days? It's a very hard question because I've been watching this show over and over again. <laughs> so I haven't had as much opportunity. I watch The View religiously. 
That's my dream. That's my retirement plan is I want to be a co-host of The View someday. Um, Let me think here. I really loved The Boys. Like I caught up on that and was able to kind of binge it all at once and really, really enjoyed that. Um, Bluey is a Australian kids television show. It's animation and it's some of the best animation I've ever seen. And it makes me and my husband cry like every episode. It's very embarrassing. Um, Trying to think of what else. Um, Old episodes of Mad Men. Yeah. That's all I got. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. The entire first season of Rutherford Falls bows April 22nd on Peacock. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. This week's major new launches include Kate Winslet limited series Mayor of Easttown on HBO, John Stamos stars in David E. Kelly's Big Shot for Disney+, and Amazon debuts Frank of Ireland. Dan, what you got? I think my favorite of the things coming up this week uh, is, without any question, Mayor of Easttown. Um, It is a, a very familiar genre. It's the female law enforcement figure investigating horrible murder that strikes close to home uh, while she deals with trauma and tragedy in her personal life genre. And so, you know, that can be Broadchurch would be one very good example. Uh, Happy Valley, which you can watch all of on Netflix because it's spectacular, would be another great example. And, And this is just a really, really solid version of the genre. It is... It is involving, it's authentic, it feels as if it's a somewhat lived location. The creator is uh, Brad Inglesby, and he is also from suburban Philadelphia, and this is set in the outskirts of the main line. Uh, And it's definitely harrowing, it's definitely sad and uncomfortable, and there's there, there are definitely mystery tropes that are very familiar to it. But when you put someone as good as Kate Winslet doing a very elaborate Philadelphia accent at the center, and then you just surround her with with an outrageously good cast. It, it is just an amazing cast. You have Jean Smart playing her mother. You have Angori Rice uh, as one of her daughters. You have Julianne Nicholson as one of her best friends. You have Guy Pierce as the new guy in town who's a writer who may or may not romance her. Uh, you have Evan Peters blissfully freed from the Ryan Murphy empire and suddenly looking like an actual actor, not just a guy doing quirky line readings in strange American horror story things. Weird how that works. Uh, Yeah, such a good cast. It is wonderfully directed. This is one of those shows where it's the same writer and the same director throughout. The director is Craig Zobel, who's very good, gives just this total sense of of place. It feels authentic. It feels lived in. Uh, And it's a mystery where I'm actually curious where the mysterious elements are are going. Uh, HBO has sent critics five of seven episodes, and that could either mean that it goes off a cliff in six and seven, because there have certainly been cases like that. I would say that The Undoing is an example of a show where it was kind of right on the edge on the basis of what Netflix sent critics, and then it really kind of went haywire from there. Um, I don't know if this will. I'm always good to cover your butt and say it could be a disaster eventually, but now it's not. Uh, no, I, I really liked this. I, I was totally involved and not depressed. You you enjoyed this one as well, right? I do. I Yeah, here's where you take your shot. I'm not a critic, so take, take this what you will, but I loved it. And this, these are typically these, you know, whodunit type shows are not things that I 
am really interested in. It's not a genre that I'm particularly uh, care for, but yeah, it was riveting. Just every, as you said, every performance was great. The story is great. Like you're just you're captivated by Kate Winslet and she's so good in this. And just every single character in this is interesting. So yeah, I can't wait to watch more. It's actually a big week for Philadelphia related things because my other favorite thing this week, which I saw at Sundance back in January or February, is PBS's independent lens series, Philly DA, which is a nonfiction show about uh, Larry Krasner's election as a reform minded district attorney in Philadelphia and the institutional pressures and resistance he faces. And so it's. It's very wonky. It's very about procedure, and you may not buy at all the things that Larry Krasner was trying to sell the electorate, uh, but it is interesting to see what happens when an outsider takes an insider role in a political system. So those are the things I strongly recommend. I, I didn't mind uh, Big Shot on Disney+. Plus. David E. Kelly is one of the creators. The other creators are Dean Laurie and very tall actor Brad Garrett. Uh, and... It, the premise is basically what if a notorious slash infamous college basketball coach, think Rick Pitino mostly, but also a little bit of Bobby Knight, had to, for whatever reason, leave the college game and the only job he could get was as the coach of a girls' private school basketball high school team. Um, I've seen several people on Twitter suggest that it's offensive, that it's suggested that coaching girls is presented as kind of the lowest point that he can hit. And I think I agree with that. I'm not sure that's a, a particularly good message that's being sent. The, the well, dude, you hit rock bottom, you have to deal with girls. That's, that's not great. And the show is not really in-depth or smart enough to deal with whether or not that should be seen as career suicide. Uh, to, to me, and I described it this, in my, this way in my review, it's kind of the outline of a show. It, it avoids a lot of very obvious cliches. This team that he's coaching, they're not the bad news bears. They're, they're just a slightly undersized team that maybe doesn't play all that well together as a unit and thus they lose games. So there are no easy laughs of people not knowing how to dribble or gigantic people blocking shots and everyone going, ha ha ha. That's so funny. Cause they're little girls. It's, it's not that it's, it's less than that. It's also not a show where, for example, John Stamos's characters could be coping with alcoholism or really anything serious. He's just a basketball-obsessed guy who hasn't put enough attention into his personal life. And so as a result, there's not really all that much conflict. It, it is still very much a Disney show, so it is a world without swearing. It's a world without sexuality. It's a world without drug use. It's a world without a lot of serious things that might also provide con conflict. So again... A lot of the things that would normally push a story like this along are absent here, and, and you feel their absence. But it's not badly written in terms of dialogue. There are some good supporting characters. Yvette Nicole Brown is the dean of the school, and she's funny. A lot of the uh, relative unknown actresses who play members of the team are, are really solid. So I think I will watch more of this. It's just not as instantly appealing slash heartwarming as, for example, the the Mighty Ducks extension if that's what you're looking for in terms of tv shows about coaching figures or whatever and then you have amazon's frank of ireland which was co-created by brothers uh brian and donald gleason um and brendan gleason the paterfamilias appears in one of these six episodes that were sent out this is one where it, it's a story of a 
man-child, 30-something man-child still living at home. It is a very familiar sitcom trope, both in British TV and American TV. And it plays a lot of very familiar beats. As I was writing my review, I think I became more and more convinced that it's actually bordering on an intentional parody of the genre. And I think I find it more interesting and likable as that. On the other hand, regardless of what it is, it's not really consistent enough or funny enough for it to be worth it for you to really want to put in the time to find out if it's a parody. And that's not the best of signs. Uh, The first episode was easily my least favorite. So you can take that however you want in the sense that, well, you could probably skip the first episode anyway, uh, because it's not hugely serialized. But also, if you kind of like the first episode, I can tell you it does get better. If you find the first episode repellent, I can tell you it does get better, but that there's really no reason to stick with it for six. Uh, it's, you know, it's it's not it's not bad, but the Brothers Gleason are probably more talented than this, and I, I can't give it an enthusiastic recommendation. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. Well, Dan, this feels like a good place for us to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by the showrunner behind Netflix's Shadow and Bone. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It does help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Come say hi. Questions, comments, concerns, compliments, insults, whatever. Uh, But if you have specific actual questions for future mailbag segments, we could have done one this week, but we decided two weeks in a row was probably a little much. You can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan.